Our reading comes from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3. And if you're following from one of the Bibles on the shelf in front of you, you'll find it on page 967. So it's uh, Matthew, chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. The coming of John the Baptist. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt round his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance and do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now, it is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Good to see you all here this morning. Do you please keep those passage, that passage in front of you as we'll be looking at it uh, in some detail this morning. Let me pray as we start together. Father God, we thank you so much for this wonderful opportunity to look at your word together this morning. Help us to focus now on your word, to open our ears and our hearts to what you have to say to us from it. For your glory we pray these things. Amen. First impressions. First impressions are important, aren't they? I wonder if you've ever been in a situation where you try to give a really good, a, a great first impression, but end up doing quite the opposite. I remember once when I went to go on an interview uh, at Cornhill in London where I studied 
uh, part-time for two years, I managed to somehow get lost on the way, uh, finding myself at the ITV studios instead, quite randomly. So I was running, and I was running late. Eventually, I did arrive, uh, somewhat sweatier and more stressed than I would have liked, but I was offered a cup of tea whilst I waited. And of course, though, it being that sort of day, I managed to spill the cup of tea all over my lap. And just at that moment of pain and horror, I'm called to start my interview. Not a great first impression. Well, thankfully, the rest of the interview did go quite well, and I was accepted onto the course. But first impressions do make a difference. And this morning, we'll be thinking about Jesus' first impression as he began his ministry here on earth. We're carrying on in our series, Meeting Jesus in Matthew's Gospel. And actually, this is something that is so valuable and so important, because rather than simply hearing about Jesus, what other people think about him, rather than simply talking about Jesus, sharing with others what we know about him, in these pages we can actually meet with Jesus and get to know him for ourselves. There are a load of misconceptions, aren't there, out there as to who Jesus is and to why he came to earth. Increasingly, we live in a time where we're told to look to ourselves for the answers, from the self-empowerment posters that you may have in your office to the constant drum of social media's call to look within to find the solution to the many problems we see around us at the moment. But when it comes to who Jesus really is, we can't look to ourselves. We will only find the answers from God himself. We need to go to God's word, what God has to say to us, to properly be introduced to Jesus. So this morning, as we look to who Jesus really is, be prepared for some tension, perhaps for some surprises, as we decipher between who we would like Jesus to be and who Jesus truly is. We've recognised already this morning that first impressions can often leave a lasting impression, for better or for worse. And here in Matthew 3, we see some really significant first introductions. And the impression we get from them as we meet here with the real Jesus should be a lasting one. Here in these verses, we see three introductions to Jesus. John's introduction to Jesus, Jesus' own introduction, and God the Father's introduction to Jesus. And from these, we're given a striking first impression of who Jesus is and what he came to do. Well, firstly then, we're given John's introduction to Jesus. The Gospel writer Matthew gives us a pretty striking scene, doesn't he? We're in the wilderness, sparse, sweeping hills, and amongst them, the river Jordan. And you can see the crowds gathering. People from all over are coming together. We're told that there are people from Judea, Jerusalem, the capital, the whole area have come. Why? Well, at the centre of this growing crowd is a man. And from all appearances, this is definitely no ordinary bloke. He's wearing camel hair, 
with a big leather belt. And if he gets peckish, then he's got some honey roast locusts to munch on. This isn't the latest fashion trend from Top Man or River Island. This man, John, was different, to say the least. You see, John was the last of the prophets, individuals called upon by God to be his special messengers. Prophets were to warn God's people, to encourage them, and ultimately to point them, to prepare them for God's plan of salvation. And that's why John looks as he does here. As God's mouthpiece, it was the message that was important and not the messenger. What we see before us here in these pages is a man who lived simply, getting food that was easily attainable, and dressing in a way that was far from elaborate. He is the last of the prophets. And we see in these verses that when he addresses the people, he warns them, encourages them, and very much prepares them for God's big salvation plan. And in all this, John is introducing us and the crowds here to Jesus. The tone of his, of his introduction is set by the first word we hear him say. Repent. Verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. John's message isn't try harder and keep going. It's not look to yourself for the solution. It's repent. To completely turn your life around from what you were doing and turn to God. As we often tell the youth, repent to do a U-turn from sin and to live for him. Why? Why do God's people here need to be told to repent by God's messenger? Because the kingdom of heaven has come near. What is John the Baptist referring to here? Well, the kingdom is the most important topic in Jesus' teaching throughout the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Matthew, we see the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, appear 32 times. And looking at the context in which these phrases are given, and looking at what Jesus is actually teaching, we see that the kingdom here is referring to a rule rather than a realm. It points us to God doing something, actively ruling, rather than to an area. The kingdom here is something that happens rather than something that exists. And this kingdom is closely connected with the one who will bring in this rule, Jesus. So, as Jesus approaches this crowd in the wilderness, as he's about to begin his earthly ministry, we see John the Baptist declaring that the kingdom of heaven is near. God will actively rule, so repent. But surely God's kingdom is a good thing. His rule, living under his kingship, is a good thing. So why this warning? Why this call to repent? Well, John calls them to repent because the coming of the kingdom will not only herald God's good rule, but also his just judgment, his just judgment. In verse 11, John directly refers to Jesus as he states, there is one coming more powerful than I. Now, he will not baptize with water, as John does here, but with the Holy Spirit and fire. The baptism is no mere ritual, but one that involves the effective gift of the Spirit of God. 
But what does it actually mean to be baptized by the Holy Spirit? Well, have a look at these verses in Ephesians behind me. And let me read them out. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who was a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So here we see that the Holy Spirit is a seal, not the one that you might find in a zoo, unsurprisingly, but a seal that you might find on a letter, something like this, which would serve two functions, to preserve the letter that's inside the envelope until it's reached the person that it was sent to, and also to inform anyone who sees it who this letter is from. So if I was to send you a letter and had a a stamp put upon it, it would have SS written, you'd know it was from Steve Sweet. In the same way with us and God, if we repent and believe in him, then we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. We are preserved and kept safe as Christians until we reach our Father in heaven. And we also bear his name. The Spirit is God's stamp on our hearts as we're set aside as his. So that is what it is to be baptised by the Holy Spirit. That is what Jesus brings. Salvation, security, belonging. But we see back in verse 11 that he also baptises with fire. And it may not be immediately clear what this is pointing to. But if we look at the next verse, we begin to see that this is referring to God's judgment. The vast majority of us won't be from farming backgrounds. We don't live in a culture that is centred around agriculture as this one was. So when we read in verse 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, we may be a little bit puzzled like me when I first was when I read this. But I'm reliably told that in this kind of culture, at harvest time, the grain would be separated from the husks, and this process would be done with a winnowing fork, in the picture that you can see behind me, where the grain would be lifted with these forks, thrown into the air, and the heavy grains which could be used for food would fall back to the ground, whilst the light useless chaff would be carried away by the wind. And it is that imagery that John uses to describe God's judgment. Jesus, who will bring in God's good and just rule, will one day judge the world, deciphering between those who have put their trust in him and those who have not. The winnowing fork is in his hand, John says. It's a picture of imminent activity. Judgment is coming. John states that on that day, there will be no middle ground, no grey area, no sitting on the fence. You're either grain destined for the barn or chaff for the fire. This isn't the only point in this passage where fire is mentioned. Look back at verse 7 to 10, where John is speaking to the religious leaders of his day. Unsurprisingly, the guy wearing camel skin, who is God's messenger, doesn't beat about the bush. You brood of vipers, is what he calls them. As Jesus will later recognise during his ministry, 
John sees these religious leaders for who they truly are. Hypocrites. All talk and no walk. And we have another picture here of the situation. We've moved away from the grain fields and we find ourselves amongst the trees. And John makes it clear to them that what really counts isn't your heritage, whether you're born a Jew, a son of Abraham, or not. It's whether you're bearing the fruit of repentance, the fruit that is in line with repentance. So we see here the warning not to rely on your heritage, but on repentance alone. I don't know if you have any fruit trees in your garden at home, but whilst I was growing up, we had an apple tree at the end of our garden. And each year I remember that my mum would be very keen for my brothers and I to go out and to collect some of its fruit. But it was one of those trees that never really produced that many apples, as I'm sure you may be familiar with, some of yours perhaps. And the ones that it did produce were often a bit squishy, often sort of worm-infested. And so we'd often find ourselves putting them to better use uh, and playing cricket with them, as you do. And actually, perhaps sometimes seeing if we could hit it over the neighbour's roof, much to my mum's despair. We knew the tree wasn't much good because its fruit was never really up to much. And here, we see that if a tree doesn't bear the fruit of repentance, then it's destined to be cut down and thrown into the fire. It's not bearing fruit, doing good works that saves us, but it's those good works that show we have a changed heart, that we have repented, and that we have been saved. And again, like the winnowing fork that is at hand, this axe is ready at the roots of the trees. Judgment under Jesus is coming. But before we can point the finger and say to those Pharisees and Sadducees that they had it coming, we need to evaluate our own lives and our own situations. Whilst we may not depend on our own Jewish heritage to make us right with God, we may well think that because we've grown up in Christian circles, that we'll somehow be okay on the day, or right on the night. Hear John's clear warning. Don't think just because you've grown up in church, perhaps here at St. Mary's, that you'll, perhaps you've done the youth groups, the, the youth clubs, that you'll be right with God. Please don't think that just because you're from a Christian family and mix in Christian circles and can speak the lingo, that you'll be okay. Perhaps you even ticked Christian on the census. It's not enough. It's through repentance and trust in Jesus alone that we will be saved. We need to recognise the serious warning that we get here. And it's heavy stuff, isn't it? And it's definitely not popular to think of Jesus as judge. Loving saviour? Absolutely. Wise teacher? Definitely. King and lord? Yeah, most of the time. Judge of the world? Not so much. And you might be thinking, what gives Jesus the right to judge me? Who is he to come and say that some can be saved whilst condemning others? Well, from our next two introductions, and these will be 
briefer than the first, we see why Jesus is able to judge them, judge us, and judge the world. And we'll also see that he's not just able to judge, but he is the only one able to do so. So secondly then, looking at how Jesus introduces himself, we see Jesus enter the scene in verse 13, and he's come to be baptised. John can't get his head around it. We've seen how he's introduced Jesus, the king who will bring in God's rule, the judge of the world. And now he wants to be baptised by John. Well, it's here in verse 15 that we see the first words of Jesus recorded in the New Testament. The first words that Jesus says in this gospel. Do they show his divinity, his kingship, his power, his great knowledge? Jesus says in verse 15, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfil all righteousness. These words here show us Jesus' obedience to God the Father. From the very beginning, Jesus is introduced to us as the one who is pleasing to the Father because he fulfills all righteousness in a way that Israel, who are described as God's firstborn, had failed to do. God's people had failed time and time again to live as he had called them to live. But now we see God's Son perfectly obeying his Father. I thought that was really striking as I was preparing this this week, that Jesus, who is God's King, God's Judge, who was God, introduces himself as the humble, obedient Son of the Father. And his being pleasing to the Father is authenticated by our third and final introduction. In verse 16 to 17, we see God the Father's introduction of Jesus. So who is Jesus? Well, look at me, look with me at these verses. As Jesus comes up out of the water, having been baptised, the Spirit of God descends upon him, and the voice of God says, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. The heavenly voice points that wonderful, special relationship. This is God's beloved. This is the one who God takes pleasure in. Here is the righteous one who does the Father's will and with whom the Father is pleased. That's who Jesus is. And we meet him for who he truly is here in these pages. Similarly, Uh, Look to Jesus. This is the first time, actually, where we see uh, God the Father as Jesus when he spoke. The first time, this is the first time, sorry, we heard him speak in this gospel in the New Testament. This is the first time we hear God the Father speaking here in Matthew. And it shows to us just who Jesus is, his status, his purpose. He is the only one who pleases the Father through his perfect obedience. And all this shows us why why he is the only one who can judge the world. Here we see that Jesus is perfectly obedient to God the Father. Something that no one here can claim, that I certainly can't claim. Something that no one in all of human history can claim. He fulfills all righteousness. 
Compare that to our own condition that we read of in Romans 3, where the Apostle Paul says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. And as God's sinless son, his obedient ruler, he alone is in a position where he can judge all peoples. Jesus alone can judge the world because he alone obeys God and he alone pleases God. Well, what an introduction to Jesus we've been given this morning. But where does it leave us? What do you take away from such a meeting? What impression has Jesus left on you? Have you recognised that Jesus will one day judge everyone who has ever lived as the one who brings in God's rule? He will bring us all to an account for what we have done. Have you also realised that there is no one who properly obeys God? There is no one good enough for God. Our heritage won't save us. Our church attendance won't save us. Our good works won't save us. But also, have you realised this morning that we can repent from all the wrong stuff that we've done? We can go to Jesus. And those words spoken by God the Father about him, about Jesus, can be spoken over me and you. This is my son, my daughter whom I love. With him, with her, I am well pleased. Through repentance and through Jesus, we can be much-loved children of God. It's such good news. There is hope in judgment. But we do need to have listened to John's clear warning here. Don't think for a moment that without Jesus, you're okay, that you're safe. Without him, we're lost. Jesus is love, and he is our wonderful saviour. But there is something to be saved from. And without accepting the gift of salvation that Jesus offers, then we will be found guilty on that day. See Jesus for who he truly is from this meeting, as king and judge, but also as saviour and God's perfectly obedient son. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for this clear warning that we have been able to hear this morning. Help each and every one of us to respond to it as you want us to respond. Recognising that we can't depend on our good works, we can't depend on our Christian heritage to make us right with you. But help us as we recognise that imminent judgment, your just judgment, to go to your son for salvation, to trust him as the one who is, as the one who has perfectly obeyed you, the only one who has done that. And help us to recognise that when we go to you, we too can be called sons and daughters of God. We thank you so much for this truth. Help, uh, help us to let it sink into our minds, our hearts, and the way that we live our lives this week. For your glory. Amen.